Chapter 8, Part 1 of Zone Policeman 88, read by Mickey Lee Rich. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Zone Policeman 88, A Close-Range Study of the Panama Canal and Its Workers, by Harry A. Frank. Chapter 8, Part 1. There is much in this police business, said the captain, with a slow, deliberate enunciation, that must lead to a blank wall. Out of ten cases to investigate, it is quite possible nine will result in nothing. This percentage could not, of course, be true of a thousand cases, and a man's services still be considered satisfactory. But of ten, it is quite possible. As for knowing how to do detective work, all I bring to the department myself is some ordinary common sense and a little knowledge of human nature, and with these I try to work things out best I can. This peeping through the keyhole police work I know nothing whatever about and don't want to, nor do I expect a man to. I had been discussing with the captain my dissatisfaction at my failure to get results in an important case. A few weeks on the force had changed many a preconceived notion of police life. It had gradually become evident, for instance, that the profession of detective is adventurous, absorbing, heart-stopping, chiefly between the covers of popular fiction. That real detective work, like almost any other vocation, is made up largely of the little unimportant everyday details, with only a rare assignment bulking over the mass. As the captain said, it was just plain, everyday work carried on by the application of ordinary common sense. Such bestseller artifices as disguise were absurd. Not only would disguise in all but the rarest cases be impossible, but useless. The ABC of plain clothes work is to learn to know a man by his face rather than by his clothing, and at the outset, one will be astonished to find out how much he has hitherto been depending on the latter. It must be the same with criminals, too, unless your criminal is an amateur or a fool, in which event you will land him without the trouble of disguising. A detective, furthermore, should not be a handsome man or a man of striking appearance in any way. The ideal plain-clothes man is the little insignificant snipe whom even the ladies will not notice. Since April 10th, I have been settled in Notorious House 111, Ancon, a sort of frontiersman resort or smuggler's retreat, had there been anything to smuggle, where to have fallen through the veranda screening would have been to fall into a foreign land. As payday approached, there came the duty of standing a half hour at the station gate before the departure of each train to watch and discuss with the ponderous, smiling, dark-skinned chief of Panama's plainclothes squad, or with a vigilante, the suspicious characters and known crooks of all colors going out along the line. On the 12th, 13th, and 14th, the ICC pay car, that bank on wheels guarded by a squad of ZP, sprinkled its half million a day along the zone. Then, plainclothes duty was not merely to scan the embarking passengers, but to ride out with each train to one of the busy towns. There, scores upon scores of soil-smeared workmen swarmed over all the landscape with long, paper-wrapped rolls of Panamanian silver in their hands, while flashily dressed touts and crooks of both sexes drifted out from Panama with every train to worm their insidious way into wherever the scent of coin promised another month free from labor. To add to those crowded times, the chief dissipation of the West Indian during the few days following payday that his earnings last is to ride aimlessly and joyously back and forth on the trains. There is one advantage, though some policemen call it by quite the opposite name, in being stationed at Incon. 
When crime takes a holiday and do nothing threats tropical dementia, or a man tires of his native land and people, a short stroll down the asphalt takes him into the city of Panama. Barely across the street where his badge becomes mere metal and he must take care not to arrest absent-mindedly the first violator of his own laws, whom he is sure to come upon within the first block. He notes that the English tongue had suddenly almost disappeared. On every hand, lightly sprinkled with many other dialects, sounds Spanish, the slovenly Spanish of Panama in which bueno is bueno and calle is que. As he swings languidly to the right into Avenida Central, he grows gradually aware that there has settled down about him a cold indifference, an atmosphere quite different from that on his own side of the line. Those he addresses in the tongue of the land reply to his questions with their customary gestures and fixed phrases of courtesy, but no more, and a cold, dead silence falls sharply upon the last word, and at times, if the experience be comparatively new, there seems to hover in the air something that reminds him that way back 56 years ago there was a massacre of Americans in Panama City. For the Panamanian has little love for the United States or its people, which is the customary thanks any man or nation gets for lifting a dirty half-breed gammon from the gutter. Off in the vortex of the city lulls Panama's public market, where Chinamen are the chief sellers and flies the chief consumers. Myriads of fruits in every stage of development and disintegration, haggled bits of meat, the hundred sights and sounds and smells one hurries past, suggests that Panama may even have outdone Central America before Uncle Sam came with his garbage cans and his switch. Further on, down at the old harbor, lingers a hint of picturesqueness of Panama in pre-canal days. Clumsy boats, empty or deep-laden with fruit from or freight to the several islands that sprinkle the bay, splash and bump against the little cement wharf. Aged wooden windjammers doze at their moorings. Everywhere are jabbering natives with that shifty half-cast eye and frequent evidence of deep-rooted disease. Almost every known race mingles in Panama City, even to Chinese coolies in their umbrella hats and rolled-up cotton trousers, delving in rich market gardens on the edges of the town, or dog-trotting through the streets under two baskets dancing on the ends of a bamboo pole, till one fancies oneself at times in Singapore or Shanghai. The black zone laborer, too, often prefers to live in Panama for the greater freedom it affords. There, he doesn't have to clean his sink so often, marry his wife, or banish his chickens from the bedroom. Policemen with their clubs swarm everywhere, for no particular reason than that the little republic is forbidden to play at army, and with the presidential election approaching, political henchmen must be kept good-humored. Not a few of these officers are West Indians, who speak not a word of Spanish, nor any other tongue, strictly speaking. Rubber-tired carriages roll constantly by along Uncle Sam's macadam, amid the jingling of their music bells. Everyone takes a carriage in Panama. Any man can afford 10 cents, even if he has no expense account. Besides, he runs no risk of being overcharged, which is a greater advantage than the cost. All this may be different when Panama's electric line all the way from the Balboa docks to Las Sabanas is open, but that's another year. Meanwhile, the lolling in the carriages comes to be quite second nature. But like any tropical Spanish town, Panama seethes only by night especially Saturday and Sunday nights when the paternal zone government allows its children to spend the evening in town. 
Then, frequent trains, unknown during the week, began with the setting of the sun to disgorge Americans of all grades and sizes through the clicking turnstiles into the arms of gesticulating hackmen, some to squirm away a foot between the carriages, all to be swallowed up within ten minutes in the great sea of colored people. So that large as may be each train load, white American faces are so rare on Panama streets that one involuntarily glances at each that passes in the throng. It is the gumshoe's duty to know and be known in as many places as possible. Wherefore, on such nights, whatever his choice, he drifts early down by the Normandy and on into the Panazone to see who is out and why. In the latter emporium, he adds a bottle of beer to his expense account, endures for a few moments the bawling above the scream of the piano of two Americans of Palestinian antecedents, admire some local hero, like Baldy, for instance, who is credited with doing what Napoleon could not do, and floats on, perhaps to screw up his courage and venture into the thinly clad Teatro Apollo. He who knows where to look, or was born under a lucky star, may even see on these merry evenings a big marine from Bass Abispo, or a burly soldier of the tenth, howling some joyful song with six or seven little spig policemen climbing about on his frame. At such times, everything but real blood flows in Panama. Her history runs that way. On the day she won her independence from Spain, it is said that the general-in-chief cut his finger on a wine glass. The day she won it from Colombia, there was a Chinaman killed but everyone agrees that was due to the Celestial's criminal carelessness. Down at the quieter end of the city are Las Bovedas. That curving seawall Philip of Spain tried to make out from his palace walls, as many other, regal and otherwise, has strained his eyes in vain to see where his good coin is gone. But the walls are there all right, though Philip never saw them, crumbling a bit, yet still a sturdy barrier to the sea. A broad cement and grass promenade runs atop, wide as an american street thirty or forty feet below the low parapet sounds the deep time-mellowed voice of the pacific as there rolls higher and higher up the rock ledges that great tide so different from the scarcely noticeable one of the colon the summer breeze never dies down never grows boisterous on the landward side panama lies mumbling to itself down in the hollow between squat chiriki prison with its american warden once his own policeman, while in the round stone watchtowers on the curving parapets lean prison guards with fixed bayonets and incessantly blow the shrill ten whistles that is the universal Latin American artifice for keeping policemen awake. On the way back to the city, the elite, or befriended, may drop in at the university club at the end of the wall for a cooling libation. On Sunday night comes the band concert in the palm-ringed cathedral plaza. There is one on Thursday, too, in Plaza Santa Ana, but that is packed with all colors and considered rather vulgar. In the square by the cathedral, the aggregate color is far lighter. Pure African blood hangs chiefly in the outskirts. Then the haughty aristocrats of Panama, proud of their own individual shade of color, may be seen in the same promenade with American ladies, even a garrison widow or two, from out along the line. Panamanian girls gaudily dressed and suggesting to the nostrils perambulating drugstores shuttle back and forth with their perfumed dandies. Above the throng, past the heads and shoulders of unemotional, self-possessed Americans, erect and soldierly. Sergeant Jack of Ancon Station was sure to be there in his faultless civilian garb, a figure neat but not gaudy, and even busy Lieutenant Long was known to break away from his stacked-up duties and his black stenographer and come to overtop all else in the square save the palm trees, whispering together in the evening breeze between the numbers. 
There is no favoritism in zone police work. Every crime reported receives full investigation, be it only a Greek laborer losing a pair of trousers or... There was this case that fell to me early in May, for instance. A box billed from New York to Peru had been broken open on Balboa Court and one bottle of cognac stolen. Unfortunately, the matter was turned over to me so long after the perpetration of the dastardly crime that the possible culprits among the dock hands had wholly recovered from the probable consumption of the evidence. But I succeeded in gathering material for a splendid typewritten report of all I had not been able to unearth to file away among the priceless headquarters archives. Not that the ZP has not its big jobs. The force to a man distinctly remembers that absorbing two months between the escape of wild black Felix Paul and the day they dragged him back into the penitentiary. No less fresh in memory are the expeditions against Maurice Pelot or Francois Barduc, the murderers of Miraflores. All Martinique Negroes, be it noted, and of all things on this earth, including greased pigs, the hardest thing to catch is a Martinique criminal. After all, four or five murders on the zone in three years is no startling record in such a swarm of nationalities. Cases large and small, which it would be neither of interest nor politic to detail, poured in during the following weeks. Among them was a counterfeit case unearthed by Shylock Holmes of the Panamanian force that called for a long perspiring hunt for the plant in odd corners of the zone. Then there was an ex-ZP who lost his three-year savings on the train, for which reason I shattered a well-known American, for it is a ZP rule that no one is above suspicion, above Panama, afoot in carriages nearly all night, in true dime-novel fashion. There was the day I was given a dangerous convict to deliver at Culebra Penitentiary. The criminal was about three feet long, jet black, his worldly possessions comprising two more or less garments, one reaching as far down as his knees and the other as far up as the base of his neck. He had long been a familiar sight to zoners among the swarms of boot blacks that infest the corner of the PRR station. He claimed to be eleven and looked it. Having already served time for burglary and horse stealing, his conviction for stealing a gold necklace from a Negro washerwoman of San Miguel left the Chief Justice no choice but to send him to mediate a half a year at Culebra. There's no reform school on the zone. The few American miners who have been found guilty of misdoing have been banished to their native land. When the deputy warden had sufficiently recovered from the shock brought upon him by the sight of his new charge to give me a receipt for him, I raced for the noon train back to the city. Thereon, I sat down beside Paul, first-class policeman X, surprised to find him off-duty and in civilian clothes. There was a dreamy, faraway look in his eyes, and not until the train was racing past Rio Grande Reservoir did he turn to confide to me the following extraordinary occurrence. Last night, a dreamed old judge had my father and my mother up before him. On the stand, he asked my mother her age, and the funny part of it is that my mother has been dead for over ten years. She turned around and wrote on the wall with a piece of chalk, 1859, the year she was born. And then my father was called and he wrote, 1853. That's all there was to the dream. But take it from me, I know what it means. Just add them together, multiply them by five, because I could see five people in the courtroom, divide by two, father and mother, and I get, he drew out a crumpled arrest form covered with penciled figures, 9280, and there, his voice dropped low is your winning number for next Sunday. So certain of this, that first class X had bribed another policeman to take his eight hour shift, 
dressed in his vacation vest, bought a ticket to Panama and returned with real money at tourist prices and would spend the blazing afternoon seeking among the scores of vendors in the city for lottery ticket 9280. And if he did not find it there, he certainly paid his fare all the way to Colon and back to continue his search. I believe he at length found and acquired the whole ticket for the customary sum of $2.50, but there must have been a slip in the arithmetic or mother's chalk for the winning number that Sunday was 8895. Frequent as are these melancholy errors, scores of zoners cling faithfully to their arithmetical superstitions. Many a man spends his recreation hours working out the winning numbers by some secret recipe of his own. There are men on the ZP who, if you can get them started on the subject of lottery tickets, will keep it up until you run away, showing you the infallibility of their own various systems, believing the drawing to be honest yet oblivious to the fact that both the one and the other cannot be true. Dreams are held in special favor. It is probably safe to assert that one-half the numbers are over 1,000 and under 10,000 that appear in zone dreams are snapped up next day in lottery tickets. Many have systems of figuring out the all-important number from the figures on engines and cars. More than one zone housewife has slipped into the kitchen to find the roast burning and her West Indian cook hiding hastily behind her ample skirt a long fist of the figures on every freight car that has passed that morning from which, by some Antillian miscalculation and the murmuring of certain invocations, she was to find the magic number that would bring her cooking days to an end. Yet there is sometimes method in their madness. Did not Joe, who slept in the next room to me at Gatoon, hit Duke for two pieces? Which is to say, he had three thousand dollars to sprinkle along with his police salary. Yet personally, the only really appealing system was that of Cristobal. Upon his arrival on the Isthmus four years ago, he picked out a number at random, took out a yearly subscription to it, and thought no more about it than one does of a newspaper delivered at the door each morning, until one morning during this month of May, after he had squandered something over $500 on worthless bits of paper, he strolled into the lottery office and was handed an inconspicuous little bag containing $7,500 in yellow gold. Like all ZP rookies, recruits, I had been warned early to beware the sympathy dodge, but experience is the only real teacher. One afternoon, I bestraddled a crazy, still-legged Jamaican horse to go out into the bush beyond the Panama line to fetch and deliver a citizen of that sovereign republic who was wanted on the zone for horse stealing. At the town of Sabanas, where those of Panamanians who have bagged the most loot since American occupation have their summer homes, giddy, brick-painted monstrosities among the great trees, deep green foliage, and brilliant flower beds, pause a moment and think of brilliant red houses in the tropics. It will make you better acquainted with the spig. I dropped in at the police station for ice water and information. I found it in charge of a Negro policeman who knew nothing and had forgotten that. When, therefore, it also chanced that an officer of the Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals stopped before the gate with a coachman of Panama, it fell upon me to assume command. The horse was the usual emaciated rat of an animal indigenous to Panama City. When overhauled, the driver was beating the animal uphill on his way to Old Panama to bring back a party of tourists visiting the ruins. How he expected the decrepit beast to carry four more persons was a mystery. When the harness was lifted, there was disclosed the expected half-dozen large raw sores. We tied the animal in the shade near hay and water and adjourned to the station. The coachman, a weary, unshaven Spaniard whose red eyelids showed lack of sleep, was weeping copiously. He claimed to be a medrileno, which was evident, 
that he had been a coachman in Spain and Panama all his life without ever before having been arrested, which was possible. He was merely one of the many drivers for a livery stable owner in Panama, ordered to go for the tourist. He had called his employer's attention to the danger of crossing his own territory with a horse in that condition, but the owner had ordered him to cover up the sores with pads and harness and drive along. It was a very sad case. Here was a poor, honest coachman struggling to support a wife, and I don't recall how many children, but any number sounds quite reasonable in Panama, who was about to be punished for the fault of another. The paradox of honest and coachman did not strike me until later. He was certainly telling the truth. You come to recognize it readily in all ordinary cases after a few weeks in plain clothes. The real culprit was, of course, the employer. My righteous wrath demanded that he and not his poor serf be punished. I could not release the driver, but I would see that the truth was brought out in court next morning and a warrant sworn out against the owner. With showing tears and rib-shaking sobs, the coachman promised to tell the judge the whole story. I went through him and, locking him up with assurances of my deepest sympathy and full assistance, stilted on toward the little village of shacks scattered out of sight among the hills and valleys across the border. Coachman, witnesses, and arresting officer, to say nothing of horse, carriage, and sores, were on hand when court opened next morning. As I expected, the judge failed to ask the poor fellow a single question that would bring out the complicity of his employer, did not in fact discover there was an employer. I asked to be sworn and gave the true version of the case. The judge listened earnestly. When I had ended, he recalled the coachman. The latter expressed his astonishment that I should have made any such statements. He denied them in toto. His employer had nothing whatever to do with the case. The fault was entirely his and no one else in the remotest degree connected with the matter. Five dollars, snapped the judge. Coachman paid, hitched up the rat of a horse, and wobbled away into Panama. Police business. Taking me down into the grove that night, I found the driver, clean-shaven and better dressed, waiting for fares before the principal house of that section. What kind of a game, I began. Senor, he cried and tears again seemed on the point of falling. Every word I told you was true, but of course I couldn't testify against the patron. He'd discharge me and blackmail me, and you know I have a wife and innumerable children to support. Come on over and have a drink. End of chapter 8, part 1. Recorded by Mickey Lee Rich.